ago, uh, I kept hearing a steady but barely perceptible hissing noise in the wall between our garage and our dining room. And at first I thought I was imagining it, but a day or so later, I noticed a place in the wood floor in our dining room that was buckling. And when I pressed it, water came out. And so after I called the plumbers, uh, we learned, we found out that there was a tiny, tiny hole in the pipe that ran from our water heater into the wall and through the floor, which meant that we had to have drywall cut out and the pipe replaced and water restoration people come out and dry it up. Hard, hard, uh, the hardwood floors ripped out, yada, 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 little tiny hole, about $8,000 of damage. Not long after that, we got hit with a non-elective, a non-elective emergency dental bill of $4,000. Then both Amy's iPhone and mine stopped working, and you know how expensive those things are. Then one day while I was at work, Amy sent me a picture. She's, she was now, she was at this point investigating, finding things in our house that weren't, weren't, that weren't working. And so she sent me a picture of a small water stain in the ceiling on the second floor of the house. And for the next hour or so, I was at work. And for the next hour or so, I was trying to concentrate on conversations I was having around here. But no matter what people were saying, actually, the only thing I could hear was ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. It was a crazy, intense, compact period of time in which it felt like there was a vacuum attached to my bank account that was sucking me dry. Now, why am I telling you this? To make you feel sorry for me? Well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> but I also want to surface this morning a reality that I think we would all prefer not to think about, one that we would like to shove to the recesses of our minds this morning, or at least we would if the pastor would, be just, would, would just be polite enough to cooperate, and that reality being that we are all more, here's the word, vulnerable to the whims of life than we let ourselves acknowledge. Like, we need to talk about this. Because it doesn't do us any good to live in denial of this vulnerability. Fear and anxiety eventually snake their way into every nook and cranny of our souls. No matter how much energy we expend trying to pretend that we aren't vulnerable. Our vulnerability is, of course, it's why we idolize wealth so much. Money is protection. Money's power. Money's control. And let's be honest about this. The more money you have, like the less you have to fret over a water leak or an expensive car repair, right? Except we also have to be honest about the vulnerability of that same wealth. You realize how vulnerable your wealth is? Back in 2008, not a single one of Bernie Madoff's investors suspected that he was running the largest Ponzi scheme in world history, $65 billion lost, entire life savings wiped out. Elderly clients in their 80s and 90s forced to take part-time jobs just to sustain themselves. Middle-aged clients living out of cars and vans parked on street in New York City because they lost everything. It's true. Wealth can insulate you from certain kinds of vulnerability. The problem is that your wealth is vulnerable itself. Anyone catch this whole ordeal uh, in the last couple of weeks with the Peloton ad? Anybody catch this? So Peloton ran a Christmas ad in which a husband bought his wife a Peloton uh, workout bike. 
small group of people on Twitter found the ad to be insulting uh, toward women. And so they began to lash out at, against Peloton uh, on social media. In one day, one day, Peloton lost more than $1 billion in the value of their stock. One day. Do you realize how vulnerable your wealth is? Like to the emotional whims just of social media. In fact, much of what drives the hallowed stock market is just emotion. Like wealth can insulate you, it can, against certain kinds of vulnerability as long as you have it. The problem is your wealth is vulnerable. And then even if, even if someone or, or something doesn't siphon off your wealth, all of the money in the world doesn't stop a lump from surfacing in your breast. Or a doctor from telling you that there was an abnormality that she's concerned about in your latest blood test. Some of you would say, you know, I really don't have to worry about that. I'm young. But listen, let me tell you something. I've done more funerals for people in their 20s and 30s over three decades of ministry that I care to, that I care to count. Leukemia, car accidents, cancer, tumors. No matter your age, your health is vulnerable. And it's not just you that's vulnerable. The people you love the most are vulnerable. Your children are vulnerable, whether they're little children or adult children. A health issue, an accident, a divorce. Life can take your breath away at the moment that you least expect it. That's reality. You're vulnerable this morning, more vulnerable than you care to admit. On Thursday, uh, the New York Times columnist David Brooks wrote a terrific article. It was called The Politics of Exhaustion. I would encourage you to read it if you had the chance. He says in the, he says in the article that two relatively small groups of people who couldn't be more opposite politically are driving Western politics. But he makes the point that what both of those very different groups politically have in common is that they're both driven by fear. Looking for security, fear, and a lack of security. What do you hear in that? He's describing the reality of human vulnerability. But he goes on to say that the largest political block is what he calls the exhausted 75% who are simply worn out by the endless war between these two armies. And in the end, he says that that group, the exhausted 75%, will end up voting for the candidate that exhausts them less. Now, I'll let you read the article for yourself, but listen to part of what he says. Listen to this. He says, Exhaustion, as always, induces a sort of pessimism, a feeling that we are living in terrible times, a sort of weariness of the soul. And against this backdrop of cultural exhaustion and pessimism and fear, the third week of the season of Advent, as Dustin was talking about a moment ago, has the audacity to announce that the people of the kingdom of God have reason for joy. Without, on the one hand, denying the reality of our vulnerability, but also without giving in to the pessimism of exhaustion. And the reason for this joy is wrapped up in one word found in the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning. I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bible this morning to Matthew chapter 1, very first gospel, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Someone uh, made a very gracious contribution so that we could have Bibles in the pew racks for people who don't have them. So you can grab one there, uh, 
Maybe you have an electronic version of the Bible, just find Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 20. Matthew uh, describes the events preceding the birth of Jesus in this passage that we're going to read. You're probably familiar with these uh, verses and these events. Ma- uh, Jesus' mother, Mary, turns up pregnant. And her fiancé, Joseph, having trouble believing her story, that the pregnancy is a supernatural miracle, and who can blame him? Would you buy that story? No, and neither is he. But Joseph is a compassionate young man, and so he wants to find a way to break off their engagement that doesn't humiliate Mary. Verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1 says this. You can read along with me. He says, but after he had considered this, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the prophet Isaiah, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, I just want to say something before before I get into what I really want to focus on this morning, allow me to just quickly point out that one of the things that distinguishes the Bible from every other religion's holy book is the presence of these very specific predictive statements about the future known as prophecy. In this case, the prophecy involved the events surrounding the birth of Christ, and it was written hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. If you want to argue that every religion's holy book is equally valid, you have to explain why was the Bible able to accurately predict what would happen in the future hundreds of years before it happened, and the others cannot and don't even try to do so. And by the way, a virgin birth is a doozy of a prediction. It's not like the Bible's playing it safe here. This isn't like going to some fortune teller who asks you in vague and unambiguous language, did someone you love die? Who's old enough to go to a fortune teller that hasn't had someone or something they love die? Or maybe the fortune teller says, I see a stranger in your future who will come bearing gifts. That could mean a hundred different people, including Santa Claus. That's noncommittal, that's noncommittal nonsense. And there's nothing at stake in that. No, this, this prophecy goes way out on a limb, and it says a virgin is going to have a child, and if that doesn't happen, feel free to dismiss the reality of everything else in this holy book. But since it did happen, And since there's only been one virgin in human history who's ever gotten pregnant, you need to reevaluate the place that the Bible holds over all other religious holy books. No other religion's holy book will take such a risk because they cannot. Only the Bible can do that because the ultimate author of the Bible is the God who holds the future. Now, what I want to do is I want to focus in on just one word in this passage. And it's the Hebrew word in verse 23, Emmanuel. Even though it's spelled with an I here, it's the the same word that we sing in the Christmas hymn, O come, O come, Emmanuel, spelled with an E. We're just using a a Romanized version of the Hebrew word when we sing that song with that spelling, Emmanuel. I would propose to you this morning that there is more substantive reason for joy locked up in that one word than all of the money in all of the banks, markets, and financial institutions in the world today. There is more substantive reason for joy than in all of the political power in Washington. 
More substantive reason for joy in that one word than all of the finest medical institutions in the world. When you translate it into the English language, well, you can see it there in the parentheses in verse 23. It is actually three words in English, God with us. Three words that carry the weight of eternity in them. First, Emmanuel means that Jesus is God. Jesus' birth is, after all, what this passage is about. It's not about Buddha. It's not about Joseph Smith. It's not about Muhammad. It's not about Captain America. It's not about Iron Man. Jesus is the one who would be called Emmanuel. Now, here's the thing. I recognize that this point of Christian theology that Jesus is God is a point that many of you have heard so many times that its incredulity escapes you. The absurdity of it escapes you. And that happens sometimes, right? Familiarity doesn't always breed contempt. Sometimes it just breeds superficiality. Former Pope uh, Joseph Ratzinger wrote about the seeming absurdity of the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming man in the person of Jesus. He wrote about this. He said, it seems both presumptuous and foolish to assert that one single figure who is bound to disappear farther and farther into the, midst of the, into the mists of the past is the authoritative center of all of history. Can we cling it all to the straw of one single historical event? Dare we to base our whole existence, indeed the whole of history, on the straw of one happening in the great sea of history? It seems absurd, this idea, that God became human in the person of Jesus And even though its absurdity might escape you this morning because you've heard it so many times, trust me, it has not escaped many, many other people. In fact, this belief that God became human in the person of Jesus sets Christianity on a collision course with every other religion in the world. Mormons, Jews, Muslims, Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, Hindus. No one believes this. It is too absurd. Every religion has a prophet who is pointing people to God, who says, if you'll follow me and live the way, uh, the way that I tell you to live, you'll find God, but none actually claim that their leader is God. Only Christianity makes this claim. And not only does it set us on a collision course with every other religion in the world, it also sets us on a collision course with secular culture, because if Jesus is God, then our problem is far deeper than we ever knew. Our problem isn't just that we need better education or better government or better laws or better fiscal policies that will more equally distribute wealth. It's not even just that we need more morality. No, if Jesus is God, that means our problem can't be solved by principles or laws or ideas or morals because the problem is us. And the problem with us, in us, is so bad, so deep that we need a person to rescue us, a savior to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that, you see, is offensive to human pride and arrogance. It's ridiculous. It's absurd, people would say. Yet, here's what's fascinating, my friend. As offensive as this doctrine is, here we are. Two thousand years later, the whole world still stops down for its annual celebration of the birth of Jesus. As offensive, as absurd as this is, we still 
as the whole world stops down to celebrate his birth. The world doesn't stop down like we do with Christmas to celebrate any other religious leader's birthday or philosopher's birthday or political leader's birthday, only Jesus. Why? Listen to me on this. Because even for people who can't bring themselves to believe the reality of it, the implications of the idea that God became man in the person of Jesus are breathtakingly beautiful. And here's what I mean. Make a note of this somewhere. Because Jesus is God, Emmanuel means that God became vulnerable himself. God became vulnerable himself. Just like you are. Just like I am. God became vulnerable. You might not realize this, but the idea that God would become vulnerable is one of the oldest objections to the doctrine of the incarnation. Ancient Greek philosophers thought of God as impersonal and and dispassionate, and the idea that God would deign to become a vulnerable human being was scandalous. It was horrific. The Roman emperor uh, at the end of the second century, Marcus Aurelius, massacred Christians who believed in the incarnation. If this was the second century, you and I would be massacred for being here and celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. It was scandalous that God could or would care to become a person, let alone become weak, vulnerable, human. But in the birth of Christ, God is seen to be the opposite of dispassionate and impersonal. He is so passionate about humanity that he enters into the vulnerability of our experience by becoming the most vulnerable human of all, a baby. But, but, uh, but let's be candid about something, all right? Let's be candid about something. Even with babies, like there are degrees of vulnerability, aren't there? I mean, for instance, a baby born to a rich white family in New York City in one of the finest medical institutions in the world is way less vulnerable than, say, a baby born to a single poverty-stricken black woman in, say, rural Louisiana. Like There are degrees of vulnerability, even with a baby. And part of the breathtaking beauty of the doctrine of the incarnation is the staggering degrees of vulnerability to which God descended. He could have become a baby born to wealth. Instead, he chose to be born into the vulnerability of poverty. Could have chosen to be born into an ethnic majority. Instead, he chose to be born into the vulnerability of racism as a Jew without question the most despised and persecuted people in all of human history. Could have chosen to be born into power. Instead, he was born as an enemy of the state suffering vulnerability to the power-hungry, violent, and oppressive Roman Empire. The moment that he's born, the creator of the universe is on the run. Out of concern for his life, Jesus' family left their homeland. And in doing so, God entered into the vulnerability of life as an immigrant in a foreign land. He keeps descending, keeps going, degrees of vulnerability. Deeper and deeper and deeper. And part of the breathtaking beauty of the doctrine of the incarnation is the staggering degrees of vulnerability to which God descended. 
Uh, recently, I picked up, do you guys ever do this? I, I picked up a book uh, on my shelf that I had read before, a number of years ago. Uh, but I wanted to read it again. Do you ever do that? You ever pick up a book that you've read before? And read, read it? Uh, it's a book called, uh, it was published in 2010. It's a book called uh, Brief History of Thought by Luke Ferry. Luke Ferry is a professor of philosophy at the University of Paris. He isn't a Christian, and he doesn't have a particularly von, fond view of Christianity. But he does understand the significance of Christianity throughout human history. And he's writing about this idea of God descending into human vulnerability by becoming a man. Listen to what he says. This is fascinating. Listen to what he says. By resting its case upon a definition of the human person and an unprecedented idea of love, God becoming man. Christianity was to have an incalculable effect upon the history of human ideas. To give one example, it is clear that the philosophy of human rights to which we subscribe today would never have established itself. How many of you know that? How many of you learned that in school or in university, that the whole philosophy of human rights that we subscribe to today came out of Christianity, came out of the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, and the stunning dignity that that gives to even the most vulnerable people in society? How many of you knew that? Probably not many. Emmanuel, God with us. God becoming vulnerable out of love for humanity, even for those who cannot bring themselves to believe it. This doctrine is so breathtakingly beautiful that 2,000 years after his birth, the world still stops down to celebrate him. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus is God. God became vulnerable. But even something else I want you to see. Emmanuel means that we are never alone in our vulnerability. We are never alone. I mentioned, you know, just a moment ago, I just mentioned the book, A Brief History of Thought by Luke Ferry. Uh, Ferry comes right out and he says it in his book. That the reason he doesn't believe in Christ is that it is too good to be true. The idea that God would care so much about his people to enter into their vulnerability. And throughout the history of religion and thought, the gods were believed to be angry. They needed to be appeased. At the very least, they were disinterested in human suffering. But the beauty of this word, Emmanuel, God with us, is that when we consider the nearly incomprehensible lengths to which God went in order to redeem us, the fact that in the face of human sin and failure, God never withdrew from us, never abandoned us, but instead committed himself to us, taking on our vulnerability, even to the point of becoming sin on a cross. When we consider these things, we come to the startling and inevitable conclusion that there is nothing, no tragedy that can befall us, no poverty, no sickness, no pain, no injustice, no consequences from our own moral failures that will ever cause him to abandon us. This is why the third week of Advent has the audacity to claim that despite our vulnerability, unlike the cultural exhaustion, pessimism, and cynicism, the people of the kingdom of God have reason to shout for joy because God is with us in the midst of our vulnerability. Emmanuel, we are never alone. On this one word, Emmanuel, hangs the whole story of Jesus. The Gospels begin with it. 
here at Jesus' birth, and they end with it, with Jesus assuring his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, and surely I am with you always, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is why Advent says you have reason for joy. This is what joy is. Joy, my friends, is not the absence of trouble. It is the presence of God in any situation that you are in. What are you going through this morning? What has you exhausted, pessimistic, cynical? What are you fearing? The psalmist wrote, even though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because the markets are trending up. Because I have my health, because all the people I love are doing well, because the reigning political powers agree with me? No, I will fear no evil for what? You are with me, Emmanuel. I will fear no evil because all of the strength, all of the wisdom, all of the goodness, all of the mercy, all of the grace, all of the righteousness, all of the presence of God is with me and working for me. And if he is for me, who or what can stand against me? Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, God with us, always and forever, even In the valley of the shadow of death, we are never, ever alone. That's the beauty of the word Emmanuel. That's why Advent says, rejoice. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. It is a staggering uh, truth, Lord Jesus Christ that you have come into the world to save people, that you have entered into our vulnerability, and the degrees to which you have entered into our vulnerability are stunning. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done on our behalf. And for those that are here this morning, Lord Jesus, that may never have uh, understood the significance of this doctrine and never understood the significance of what you have done for us on the cross, I pray that today that they would be struck by this beauty. And maybe for the first time in their lives, they would come to a place where they believe upon you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are the answer to the problems that plague us. You are the solution to human sin. Lord, for those that are here this morning that may be facing some kind of vulnerability, they feel fearful this morning. They're in the midst of something. Lord, would you reassure them that you understand their vulnerability because you've experienced it? And that they are never, ever, ever alone. All of you and all of who you are is with them in this moment. Strengthening them. Working for them on their behalf. And I pray that you would encourage people with that this morning, Lord Jesus. And it is in your holy name, Emmanuel, that we pray.